Hi, and welcome to season one of the Mental Fitness Podcast with me, Anthony Taylor. This is the podcast where we look at what it takes to be mentally fit. That intersection between mental toughness, emotional intelligence, and good mental health. We interview some of the best people from the sporting, business, and psychological worlds to bring you the stories and suggestions on how to build your mental fitness. Here's a snapshot of what we've got in store for you this week. Base camp was like a plane crash and we just didn't know where to start. You know, we couldn't recognize our tents, anything. I think in that initial response, you're kind of in survival mode. You know, you're just doing what you need to do. And, and we spent two days walking around, digging stuff up, trying to do what we could, sort of seeing the devastation and, you know, sites that I'll, I'll never forget. And then we decided to trek out of base camp, you know, four days just so that we didn't kind of get in the way of the emergency relief efforts. And I think when I got home, you know, there was this sense of loss. You know, I didn't really want to be anywhere. I didn't want to be at home. I didn't want to be on the mountain. I just kept asking, you know, why them? Why not me? So if you like what you hear over the rest of this episode, then please join the conversation with me on Instagram at anttaylor72 or on LinkedIn where you can find me under Anthony Taylor Mental Fitness. And please subscribe. It takes just a minute but it's going to help the podcast reach more people. Okay, let's crack on with the show. So on this week's episode, I'm really excited to talk to a young man who I've known for a few years now and got to know quite well. This person is, is fascinating in that, you know, he really had some, um, some challenges during the school years, but has gone on to achieve a huge amount in his 24 years on the planet. He's had two attempts at Everest, he has started his own charity. He's done a huge amount of fundraising. He's run from Ben Nevis through down to Scarfell and on to Snowden, including climbing all of those mountains nonstop as well. So quite a remarkable individual. So Alex Staniforth, welcome to the show. No, thank you for the kind introduction and glad to be joining you and sharing some stories today. So Alex, I'm going to start off with a question that I'm asking all my guests uh, straight away, which is what does mental toughness mean to you? That's a, a really, really interesting question. And, and it's something that's actually quite a new term to me. And I think it's a bit like resilience. It's going to be one of those things that everybody has a different definition for. And that's perhaps what makes it so fascinating. I think from what I've, I've read recently, mental toughness is more about the ability to, to cope with difficult situations, but not necessarily as and when they arise, but actually choosing to seek those out, you know, and, and, and choosing to live a life with, with challenges and, and, and the growth opportunities that they bring, rather than just having the resources and the tools to, to cope when things inevitably go wrong. So I think it's more of a, a, a character trait, really, rather than... Um, a particular skill you know i think it's something that is built for experience but i think uh it is important to define that and resilience different um i think most people including myself would have got them as the same thing it's a bit like motivation and inspiration as a speaker people think they're the same but actually they're two different actions so for me it really is about choosing to perhaps go after challenges rather than just dealing with them as and when they come up and, and which some people can do naturally because of their childhood experiences and I think mental toughness is a more specific and applied trait. How would you define resilience then? Well again there's different types of resilience but I think generally the the accepted term and this is the one where you'll find online on Google and in the dictionaries is you know is our ability to bounce back or recover from a setback and in in kind of physical terms it's about the ability for a substance to regain its original shape uh, after a shock you know for example, a rubber band being one example. But personally, I would define resilience as our ability to move forwards and building the resources to actually deal with unexpected challenges. Um, I think it really is about our ability to keep on moving through adversity. And that's how I would define resilience. But then you have different components of that. I think bouncing back is is old. It doesn't do it justice. It doesn't really... Uh, give us what we need in the modern world when we don't want to be bouncing back. We want to be bouncing forwards. I think that's a really good point there. I think you're absolutely right. A lot of definitions of resilience are quite passive, I think, in that concept of bouncing back. But we're not elastic bands. We're not willow trees. We are human beings. And as you said, when we when we go through difficult times and challenges, we build, you know, we call it stress inoculation. We build up the resilience to those. So if we face them again, we've got more tools and techniques to be able to do that. 
So I think that's brilliant that you kind of make a nice distinction there in layperson's terms between mental toughness and resilience. Um, and you've certainly needed, well, we're certainly going to talk about the choices that you've you've made in recent years or your amazing endeavours. But you certainly started out by being resilient, didn't you? you? You know, you talked about on your website, you know, from I think age of nine, you had a, a mild form of epilepsy and that had quite an impact on you as well. Are you happy to share a little bit about that? You know, I'm an open book and uh, always have been in, in the hope of inspiring others through that openness. And I think definitely my childhood challenges gave me a great foundation of resilience. And I, I didn't realise at the time that all the adversity and all those challenges were just preparing me for everything that was coming. I think resilience really is about that ability to prepare for the challenges ahead. And that's why I think some people are more naturally resilient, you know, because they've been exposed to those stresses from a younger age, uh, even if we don't choose them. And I think I had a very normal start in life. You know, I was brought up near Chester. My parents gave me a great start, everything I needed. Uh, Very fortunate. Uh, Having epilepsy at nine was quite a a terrifying thing to go through at such a young age. You know, and although it was brought under control, I've been seizure free for, you know, well, ever since pretty much. Um, I'm 25 now. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that, but it was just the catalyst for different challenges. So I was badly bullied throughout school. I've had a stammer ever since I've been able to speak, despite being a professional speaker, but we'll come on to that later. I had, a, you know, anxiety and panic attacks from a young age because of that experience. And, and ultimately, from a young age, I was having to learn my own ways of coping. Um, and I think that it can create challenges in later life. For example, perfectionism, being very self-critical, having you know, having very high standards and, and, and low self-esteem as a result of that bullying. But also it's taught me how to cope with things a lot better. And I think ultimately, one of, although resilience, you know, it's not, you know, I don't think it's anything that you can necessarily, um, I think it's something that we have more than others, but it's something that we can train, we can learn. I don't think you can teach it. I think you have to learn it your own way. And uh that's where, as a speaker, it's about encouraging people to, to think differently and therefore build their own resilience. But for me, building that resilience has come through outdoor challenges, through life events, by willingly putting myself into difficult, uncertain situations. But most people get that because of the natural shocks of life, whether that's a, you know an illness or a breakup or whatever it is, or a pandemic, has forced people to, to learn resilience but I think uh, one way for me to do to do that is by going out my comfort zone. And the outdoors has been a massive part of my life since then, really. I found the outdoors at about 14. Um, and that became a way to overcome that that's a childhood adversity and, and to find a sense of purpose. And that in itself is a, is a big component of resilience, is having that um, sense of purpose and control. And, and even today, you know, the outdoors is, is a massive part of, of my daily life and, and I can't function without that, really. I, I noticed as well, you talked um, about you were aware and self-awareness is so key, isn't it, in terms of sure. mental toughness and resilience. You were aware that you had a victim mindset as a result of those challenges that you talked about. And then you chose to do something about that. How did you go about that? What, what kind of things did you do and what, did you have sources of inspiration that helped you? Yeah, I mean, everything really changed quite abruptly when I was about 14. I was on holiday in Turkey with my mum and tried to, um, I decided to try something called paragliding, which is quite an extreme sport. Um, you know, we talk about taking a leap out of your comfort zone, but that was quite literally leaping off a 7,000 foot mountain. Um, and I'm not quite sure where that urge came from. I don't think I'll ever be able to pinpoint that, but I think it was starting to question all these limits and these doubts that I'd I put on myself. You know, with all those early challenges at school I, I was stuck in this victim mindset I believed you know I was born to fail it was my fault I wasn't good enough um it wasn't fair all these really unhelpful self-limiting beliefs that you know held me back and could have held me back for a long time but I think it's discovering the power of choice actually we don't get to choose our challenges but we can choose our response to those challenges uh, and I think that in itself is for me the foundation of building resilience is actually avoiding that whole permanence mindset and actually realizing we have some control, we have a choice and we can make the best of any situation. 
And I apply that same principle now to everyday life, to the pandemic, to any, every setback that's followed. Okay, what can I do about this? And then it kind of turns into this victory mindset. You know, you, 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 you don't become a victim in a situation anymore. You take charge of a situation, you take ownership. I think from then on, by discovering that choice, I wanted to keep on challenging myself. I wanted to find what else I could overcome. I found this confidence, this drive, this passion that I never had before. And it's in many ways, to be honest, it was just a, a massive middle finger to adversity and to all the bullies. And I think that's what drives me now, not proving myself or proving the bullies wrong, but that ability to live life on my own terms. You know, and, and that for me is, is, is so important. You're absolutely right. You talk about that choice there. We do have a choice, don't we? We, I remember being quite inspired by Viktor Frankl and his amazing book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he talks about having that choice in the concentration camps and the ones that made the choice to, to live something and have a, as you alluded to a moment ago, that sense of purpose, something to really drive you. And I think that, you know, we talk about the four C's model of mental toughness. I'm increasingly thinking that at the centre of that, needs to be purpose and values, really, to get the most out of it. Um, so it's great to hear you, you talking about that. So from 14 and, and finding the outdoors for the first time to then aged 18, having a crack at Everest, the world's highest mountain. But it's quite a journey to get to that point, isn't it? Because it's not a cheap thing to do. It's not like, you know, I'll go and buy a cag and a couple of boots and, and wander up Snowden one day. So... What did, how much did you have to raise? How did you go about fundraising and, and doing all that stuff to get a crack at Everest? Well, it was quite a short journey. You know, typically what is, is expected and what I would probably advise is that Everest is, you know, it's a 10, 20 year journey of, of climbing around the world, getting the experience you need and, and then just having the opportunity to, to do it. But patience isn't my strong point. And I think I also saw the opportunity to, whilst I was younger, that getting sponsorship would be easier because I had more of a, a unique selling point. I had more of an appeal to sponsor, but also because in that four years, I started to put the steps in place to actually make this goal a reality by speaking to other climbers, learning their approaches, what I needed to do, what hoops I needed to, to jump through. And my first climb instructor kind of became my first mentor. You know, he, he kind of guided me on the process and I, I wanted to be on his team. Um, that was, a, that was a Tim Mosdale who's based in Keswick and he been one of my earliest inspirations you know after after discovering the outdoors I was then hill walking in the Lake District for the first time again about 14 years old and being in the mountains just inspired me to to dream big you know it blew my mind and being a millennial of course I came home I went on Google and became captivated by the idea of climbing Everest it just got me like nothing else had and I'd almost dedicated my life to that goal at the time you know that was all that mattered to me that was my idea of of success and so after this four years of training you know in the alps in the himalayas uh, scotland you know doing everything i needed to do i've also got to actually get on an expedition in the first place and so that process kind of started by finding finding a way you know finding a way or making one um to join tim's expedition was going to cost about thirty-five thousand pounds and that was before brexit so god knows what it is now um and and I knew that obviously my parents weren't just going to sign me a check. Everest has this sort of stereotype of being only for the rich. Um, it was really, I was time rich, but money poor. And I had to find a way around that. And luckily I came across a couple of young climbers that had been the same, you know, the same, same background as me, same position, but they managed to find sponsors. And I think knowing that was possible gave me the hope to try. But then I realized to get sponsorship is it's, it's like a full-time job. You know, I was doing my A-levels at the time. I was 17. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't even make a phone call to a sponsor because of my stammer. So I had to do it all by email. And uh, and yeah, I think it was a case of learning everything I could and speaking to as many people as I could, building a network and having my first mentors. One of them, um, John Thompson, I remember him saying to me, you know, about focusing on the main effort and and just asking me all the right questions to get there rather than telling me what to do. And I was lucky to have a few mentors who kind of gave me the, the, the permission to believe in myself. Um, and so that it was, that was a full-time, you know, a full-time job for over a year, must have contacted over a thousand companies at 17, 
should have been doing my revision for my A-levels. I was sending emails to sponsors in the school library. I was going to sponsor meetings in a suit at 17, having not a clue what I was doing. But people fortunately saw the passion. They saw the commitment. And I think what holds so many people back is that commitment. You know, I had this criteria where will this get me to Everest? It's a bit like um, that mantra in the Olympics. You know, will it make the boat go faster? Um, everything I did had to to work towards that end goal because I knew I needed every single minute I could. I knew every email could be the one. And it is about getting rejection after rejection, but you've got to trust the process, keep the end in mind. And ultimately that, that paid off. You know, I saw people going, well, starting campaigns to climb Everest, but then I saw them going on holidays and, and having social time. And to be honest, I, I sacrificed all that because I needed to. Um, and yet, fortunately, you know, I, I managed to get the sponsors together uh, in a year. Uh, got the final one four weeks before the trip was due to start, which is a bit anxious. Uh, and then in 2014, joined Tim's team and flew out to Nepal. I think what you described there is one of the elements of, of mental toughness is what we call commitment. And that's broken down into a couple of areas. One is around goal setting and then the other one is around goal orientation. So doing whatever it takes to get the job done. And I think a lot of interesting because you described yourself as not having patience being a virtue of yours. But then you had the maturity at that age, which I think is quite remarkable to set this big, hairy, audacious goal, you know, climb Everest and I get this funding. But then we're really good about sticking to the process goals of doing whatever it took to build up. And I think a lot of times people set a big, hairy goal, all excitement. And then when the motivation wears off, like you said, you saw them going on holiday and doing other things. But you really stuck to a process. Is that setting a process, chunking things down? Is that always been something you've done? Has that worked for you in the past? It was probably the first time I'd, I'd, I'd done that. And I guess it was easy to do because I knew you almost had done it. And that was the only hope, the only example I had of achieving the goal. As well as I, I was looking at their processes and, and what I could do better or improve on. But it made sense. If it worked for them, it had to work for me. <laughs> I think at the time, Everest just meant so much to me. I was so terrified of failure that I was entirely responsible for, you know, I could only let myself down, that it had to be all or nothing. It had to be hundred percent. And I think it, when you get into a routine like that, it's actually quite straightforward. Life is actually literally easy. <laughs> and I, I've actually struggled to ever get into that same level of process since, because I think because I've obviously got more aware of things and, and, I, and that complicates it, but also because I've not had a goal that's meant as much to me since. Um, but that, that whole ability just to get into the zone of repeating a process until you get there is, it, it came naturally. And once you get into it, it's, it, it gets easy to build on that habit, just like any, any routine. You know, once it becomes natural to you, you can just keep on doing it automatically. And I think that's, that's the thing is I've taken that since is that, that ability to actually, if I don't put 100% into it, then I know that I'm guaranteed to fail. Um, and that doesn't mean I've, I've always built on that. I mean, on one of my last challenges on the Three Peaks, I was so unconfident of my ability to actually complete it that I didn't really put myself fully into it. I didn't invest myself into it because it was kind of, uh, kind of a loss aversion. I was trying to mitigate the amount of disappointment. Um, but that, that was a mistake because I had to have that 100% commitment to my ability to succeed. So... That, that that process, yeah, I mean, it worked. Um, but I think it, more than anything, I was just like, like a machine, you know, sending email after email, every single one counted. And when my family went off on holiday, you know, I stayed at home. But one email I sent during that time got me a £10,000 sponsor. What's interesting about sponsorship it is about relationships. And this was the main thing I learned the second time around. Um, I had to raise the money all over again. That was a pretty daunting, demotivating process. Well, I must have contacted about a fraction of the people I needed to because I'd made a network at that point. I had contacts. And Westgrove Group, uh, who sponsored me ever since, they heard me speak at an event just before I went to Everest the first time. And and that, that relationship grew from there. So sponsorship really is about who you know rather than what you know. Um, but you've kind of got to start to, to build that. But just one final thing on that, actually, I think the power of momentum um, – Yes, the motivation will start to, to sack. It's like anything. You start a habit. And that's why most people don't 
you know, they stop them after after 30 days because they lose their motivation. But when I got my first sponsor, that was a big boost of momentum. And I think even though you get in rejection after rejection, you you get those hits of momentum that keep you going. And I think that's why sometimes setting smaller milestones is is really important. So you got out to Revis, you raised this £35,000, you went out with Tim, and then kind of disaster happened, didn't it? So 2014, there was a, uh, a big avalanche which killed 16 people, um, 16 climbers in the icefall. So we had to pack up and go home without stepping a foot on the mountain. Um, and yeah, that was obviously a massive kick in the teeth. I think that was when my na- naivety hit me. You know, I'd, I'd been conditioned to believe that the harder we work, the luckier we get. Um, but that doesn't take into account everything outside of our control. And the mountain doesn't care how much you've spent, nor, nor does COVID. <laughs> you know, and that was a real lesson in overcoming fear of failure and control. And I think also that permanence mindset of, okay, instead of thinking, oh, why has it happened to me? It's like, right, what can I do about this? My response to that was another year of training, another year of fundraising. And then, as I said, went back to 2015 when things only got a lot worse. Tell, tell us that story. So you've gone through the Cumbria Icefall, which is, I've seen a video of you doing that, and it gives me sweaty palms every time I watch it. So just describe going through the Cumbria Icefall, what that is, and then, and then what happened after that. Well, we were just at the top of the icefall when the earthquake hit, and I'm quite glad for that because it's not the place to be when the ground starts shaking. Um, the icefall is the first section above base camp. There's four camps below the summit. So we were going on our first acclimatization rotation just to give our bodies a chance to adjust. You know, you don't go up in one hit. You have to go up and down, up and down, up and down quite quite a bit. Um, and the icefall is probably the most dangerous part because you've got big house-sized blocks of ice that can topple crevasses hundreds of feet deep and you're constantly exposed to danger you know it's a very it's very unstable and it's quite notorious for that you know there's a lot of step ladders where you're walking across crevasses where you just can't see can't see the actual bottom of them um you know big steep vertical sections it's quite exciting but you don't hang around you know you could go through as fast as you possibly can and most of the team had raced well ahead of me you know i was definitely one of the slowest and the weakest in the team and um we were about half an hour away from Camp One, which is at the top of the Western Coombe. Big open valley. And uh, that's when the ground started shaking. And uh, we got hit by a big blast of powder snow. Um, and for the first time in my life at 19, you know, I was thinking, this is it, you know, game over. Wow. That must have been pretty scary. I know my dad was out in Nepal at the same time as you. He'd just come off of an expedition to Manaslu. He was in Nepal and he was walking in the street and he remembers thinking, my God, I'm having a stroke because he suddenly lost his legs and his balance. And it was only when a piece of building masonry landed a few feet in front of him did he realise actually it was a, an earthquake. So, uh, yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, and, and sadly, you lost three of your, your team throughout base camp. Three of the Sherpas and, you know, base camp that morning, my breakfast, was the last time we ever, we ever saw them. I think what, what makes it harder to deal with is that base camp is meant to be the safest place to be. You know, the mountain is normally the most dangerous. And everybody at first looked up towards the icefall when they, when they kind of heard, well, when they felt the earthquake, worried about us. But that was when in, in the cloud, in the valley, people didn't see the avalanche coming towards them. Base camp has never been hit by an avalanche before. That was how, and dare I say the word, unprecedented it was. And that's sadly where 22 people died at base camp, not on the mountain itself. 22 lost their lives that, that year. Crikey. Yes, yeah. That's absolutely horrendous. So you've come back and then you you were quite committed, weren't you, to trying to do something, give back to the people of Nepal. Tell me what you did there. Well, I think there was a lot of guilt. There was a lot of trauma. You know, uh, at, at first, when we got back down to base camp, we had to fly down by helicopter because the route had just gone. You know, it wasn't safe. Um, you know, you're, you're, dealt, you're kind of faced with this, like, bomb blast, you know, like a plane crash. You just debris everywhere um base camp was like a plane crash and we just didn't know where to start you know we couldn't recognize our tents anything and i think in that initial response you're kind of in survival mode you know you're just doing what you need to do and and we spent two days walking around digging stuff up trying to do what we could sort of seeing the devastation and you know sites that i'll i'll never forget 
And then we started to track out a base camp, you know, four days just so that we didn't kind of get in the way of the emergency relief efforts because that was obviously the priority. We were a very, very small part in, in the problem. And I think when I got home, you know, there was this sense of loss. You know, I didn't really want to be anywhere. I didn't want to be at home. I didn't want to be on the mountain. I just kept asking, you know, why them? Why not me? Of course, I'd, n- I'd never be able to answer that. But the only thing I could do um, was to, to, to give something back. You know, I owed it to the free guys. Obviously, it, that wasn't my initial response. My initial response was feeling sorry for myself and just just this sense of being lost. And it was a good, good friend of mine, Rich, who'd been in the army, who kind of gave me the tough love that I probably needed to hear, which is like, they wouldn't care if it was you. You know, you've got to grow from this. You've got to grow from this. And at first, I didn't know how on earth I could do that. But um, the natural thing was to throw myself into fundraising and to tell the story. As a speaker, you know, I just started getting into speaking more for corporates back then. It it nearly finished me off because the trauma and everything around it my, made my stammer just unbearable. I, I even went to presentations where I just had to sit down and go out of the room, come back in. So I just couldn't speak about it. Um, and I was so close to throwing the towel in actually on my speaking career. Because every time I stood up, I just stammered and stammered and block after block. And I've always been able to manage it quite well when I speak in public. Um, but I had one presentation to about 100 footballers. And I've been so close to emailing them and calling a sickie, which I've never done before and I never will do on a speaking event. And I thought, no, I don't quit. That's not in my values. I do not quit anything. So I went there, got on stage. I was terrified and I... You know, I started to speak, got a massive block, couldn't get a word out. A hundred eyes, kind of puzzled eyes looking at me. I thought, oh, no. And something, whatever it was, took over me in that moment. And with this proper vulnerability and rawness, I just absolutely nailed it. And I got probably the biggest response and positive praise and yeah, feedback from a talk that I, I've ever had. And that's what saved me on the speaking side. But that so that that was one thing but then i started writing my first book icefall obviously it wasn't the book we wanted to talk about wasn't the story i wanted to tell but actually i now had a probably unique story to tell because of the two disasters and writing that was very therapeutic mentally you know just to kind of process everything and most of all though it was fundraising um so i decided if i couldn't climb everest i was going to cycle it so wait for it I found a big hill in the Pennines and cycled up and down it 14 times, which is uh, 29,000 vertical feet. The challenge is known as uh, Everesting. So you you have to do that in under 24 hours. So I was living in, uh, after Everest, I moved up in, uh, I lived in the Lake District and I was basically cycling, fundraising and writing my book just to try and rebuild my life almost. Um, and then that was natural for me. I had to do something positive. Um, I organised a walk for Nepal event where we had 120 people on top of Snowden raising about £20,000, um, spoke at various fundraising events and just doing anything I could really. And that comes back to the sense of purpose we spoke about before. You know, I had to find a new, a new Everest because without this big goal in my life, it floored me. Now, when all that kind of died down, I realised I'd kind of ran away from it. I'd been kind of distracting myself. And then I sank into a really low point, you know, really low, low point of depression, anxiety, um, probably the worst I'd ever been. I think that was because I'd, I'd not really resolved it. I'd, I was just, it, I, I kind of didn't have any sense of purpose underneath that. So that's where sometimes keeping ourselves busy can, can be a distraction. Uh, and then, it, I, then I had to kind of reinvent myself again to be able to get out of that. I think that's, um, you're so courageous, you're talking about that, you're talking about how, you know, you were feeling after after 2015 and, you know, admitting the fact that you needed a bit of a tough love from your friend. A lot of people fall into that and perhaps we don't, we beat ourselves up and we don't think anyone else does that. So I think it's really encouraging to myself and to others who might have had episodes or been in an episode like that to think you're not the only one. Um, it's human nature to feel the way you might feel after big setbacks or, or adversity and so on. But, you know, it is, it's about, I mean, I talked about, you know, you talked about that sense of purpose. It is so important, isn't it, to have that. And you also mentioned about, you know, quitting wasn't within your values. How, how important do you think values are? And, and do you think we as a society maybe need to spend a bit more time thinking about what our values are individually? 
I think they're really important and I think they kind of naturally form themselves. But I think if we're going against our values or we're not being true to ourselves, then I think that's only going to cause problems. And when I look at the various challenging points and low points in my life, it's because I've not been aligned with my values, you know, and you can't hide that. You can't go against that for long because I think I think that is the root of a lot of depression and and stress that people are facing is because they feel they have no control, no agency over their lives. And I think um, doing things that are true to ourselves, you know, that line up with those values and what's important, I think is, is, is absolutely key to our well-being and, and self-esteem, um, you know, because as a motivational speaker and, you know, as a fundraiser or kind of a kind of, a, you know, kind of a public role model now, I have that sense of expectation that, well, I'm supposed to be able to deal with challenges. I'm not supposed to have bad days. I'm supposed to be the one that's that's telling people how to overcome them. And there is that whole imposter syndrome thing. Um, but I think, I think as well, you know, those values have to be realistic. And sometimes our narrative, our self-narrative can be quite hard on ourselves. So having the values and being aware of them, um, I think is important. But I think also not expecting too much of ourselves and just being able to balance those out, I think is also really important. Um, you know, it's like if you get a job that you hate or you you, you have to do something else you don't like, um, if that's not lined up with what you're about, then I think you become that kind of victim and that's never a good place to be. How do you think, get any thoughts on how people can go ahead to find out their values? Because then we talk about values quite a lot, so I mean, values, but my experiences, and this applied to me as well, for many, many years, I think it's what held me back. I didn't actually take the time to really think and list and prioritize what my values were. How do you suggest people go about doing that? Well, I think you have to have an awareness of the different types of values and what they are. And I think sometimes just sitting down with some quiet time and paper is the way I would approach most things. And I think as well, ask other people, ask what they think is important to you. I mean, only you know the answers, but ask them what they think about you, you know, whether it's being courageous, whether it's about being kind, whether it's about, you know, being adventurous, ambitious, creative, whatever. Um, but I think it's about knowing your feeling, you know, and that instinct, you know, write them down and, and think actually, which one of those jumps out to me? The first ones on the list generally are the ones that create that kind of most powerful feeling. And I don't, I don't think it's something that you can do in one session. I think you have to write them down, come back to them regularly. And for a while, one thing I, when I was working on them is, is actually, you know, every morning spending 15 minutes on the list. And I think every day you'll come back to them with a different perspective. And, and unfortunately, I think it's one of those things that is always going to be evolving, but it's just knowing what's important to you and then, and then why. And I think when you write things down, you start to really assess them and know, uh, you know, you're being really honest with yourself. Um, I think that's how I advise people to start. Is, is just to sit down and, and write them down what's important to them. Um, and maybe, you know, there's actually values that I've probably never heard of. And then you think, well, what's the difference between that and that and that? It's going to be the whole thing about definitions. But I think read things online about it. And I think that'll give you a bit of inspiration as well. I think that's fantastic advice. Absolutely. To, uh, like you said, just spend some time with yourself, writing down the values that, that mean most of you, checking in with other people just to see if there's a fit with your with your views on it. Um, and I think that builds into that self-awareness piece, isn't it? It's, it really is so important. Sometimes when I, you know, I'm assessing people's mental toughness levels, often come across individuals that are very mentally tough, but they haven't got that self-awareness. And it means they end up spinning their wheels because they are just not interacting or collaborating pe with people as well, because they don't know how to, they're almost too mentally strong and they can't work with other people that are less so. Um, and I think it's important as well to talk about, you know, on the more mentally sensitive end, that's not a bad thing, is it? We're not saying that people who are more more mentally sensitive can't achieve great things. It's just that maybe they're going to feel the bumps in the road a bit more. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I think that your point on self-awareness is, is, is really important because I think that is, for me, the first step towards solving the problem. When you know something's not, not right, when you're not feeling yourself and you're feeling just like you're spinning your legs and not going anywhere, I think that's often, you know, because something's out, something in your life is out of balance. That could be a value thing. You know, it could just be a situation. It could just be overwhelmed, stress, whatever. I think that self-awareness is kind of when things are ticking over, trying to work out what this problem is. And some of that comes from experience. Sometimes you need to ask for a bit of help to see the wood for the trees. Um, 
but I think yeah, being being you know emotionally sensitive about things, uh, as long as that doesn't doesn't you know become your natural response and you just take everything personally and then don't look for a solution, I think I think it's having a sensitivity and an empathy towards other people is certainly not a bad thing. Yeah, definitely. So you've written two books, haven't you? You talked about Icefall, which was the first one, and then remind me about the second. Uh, Another Peak was my second book, which came out in 2019, yeah. And what's that about? Icefall is definitely my favourite and my best one. If anybody is interested, please start with Icefall. Um, But Another Peak was more about the kind of path after Everest, that kind of what you do when your dream dies. And that process of kind of rebuilding my life and it's not it's not as you know as terrible as it sounds you know i still had a very healthy comfortable life and a house and a you know a roof over my head but just finding yourself again and then talking very honestly very openly around my mental health struggles with depression and an eating disorder managing that as an athlete then embarking on another challenge and show you in tibet that's when i had the kind of light bulb moment and decided to almost close the chapter on Everest and on the high mountains and then focus on challenges close to home. And that realization that actually it's about the journey, not always about the outcome. Um, and then coming close to home, starting my climb the UK challenge in 2017. So talking about that whole 72 day journey, climbing to the highest point of all the 100 UK counties by human power, raising money and awareness for mental health. And that, that was the kind of main story of the book really is the power of UK adventure. Um, you talked about your, you know, your work and your passion around mental health and, and your challenges. I know you and I have collaborated on a series of keynotes, haven't we, for an organisation. Tell me a little bit more about the charity that you founded, Mind Over Mountains. Well, yeah, that was an, an interesting chapter because I think it was always part of the plan that one day I'd, I'd have a charity or some way of leaving a legacy. All my challenges I've done have always been raising money for a charitable cause because it just feels like the right thing to do. You've got a great platform to do so. But I think after my last challenge, the Climbing UK uh, in 2017, I started to feel a bit like I was raising money and then just signing a cheque and then never seeing it again. And I've seen firsthand the power of the outdoors and and exercise for maintaining mental and physical health. Um, For me, it's been the best antidepressant that I've ever tried. And having been through that system, you know, I realised, well, what struck me is that it took me longer to get an appointment for my own mental health struggles, specifically when I had a, you know, really, that really bad low point of depression, you know, you know, uh, and bulimia at the end of 2015. It took me longer to get an appointment for that than it did to cycle 5,000 miles around the UK. That was when I realised just the lack of support available and that in the time it took me to get the help I needed, I actually almost managed to get myself back on track through purpose, through outdoors and through challenges. Now I know that has its peaks and troughs, but I think there is this alternative approach to mental health that avoids this kind of pills culture, you know, here's this kind of plaster on the problem that I think if we can encourage and promote that, we can help more people to help themselves. And I just wanted to help more people discover that for themselves, you know, running and cycling always got me back on my feet. was never a miracle cure but without it i don't know where i'd be so mine over mountains became a kind of became a way to uh, provide that and i never expected it would happen at 24 but you know um it's there was a demand there is a demand more than ever and it started after being involved in an event in 2018 where it was about promoting hill walking for mental health i kind of got involved with that i got really inspired by the power of it and just combining not just hill walking but with coaching mindfulness counseling and inspirational speakers into one holistic package and that worked so well that i brought in chris who's probably you know one of, one of my earliest mentors and friends uh, who's a qualified coach kind of fusing those things together and we saw the the power of that and decided to make it more accessible as a charity so we became a registered charity in august in august 2020 and I've just started to focus all of my charitable efforts into that now. Um, obviously, during lockdown, uh, it's been harder, but we've been trying to adapt and, and as always, find a way over the mountain to, to reach people that, that need us most. And we've been doing programmes around the UK, and hopefully we can get back to that uh, this year. Well, I think it's fantastic you've done that. It's, uh, I was speaking to uh, your good friend, Steve Hill, who yeah. was on an earlier episode of the podcast, and he's got his own charity as well. 
I yeah. don't know what it is about you uh, outdoor adventurers that <laughs> that's the way that you seem to go. But I think it's brilliant that you're both of you doing that and having a, a positive impact on lives. And he spoke about the same thing, I think, in terms of, you know, the slight frustration of raising all this money and then not seeing the impact of it, not having, wanting to have some influence and some say on where that oh, goes yeah. and, and seeing that. Well, Steve's a great friend and a great inspiration of mine. You know, so much positive energy that we could all do with a bit of Steve. And his, you know, his charitable trust, um, uh, you know, is is very much a great example of actually, you know, grassroots community impact and and extending the work he does with schools and young people. And uh, I think, um, yeah, it's nice to, to to have more of a say in where the money's going, but also addressing a specific need. Um, and it adds a lot more passion and meaning to the challenge as well. So you did a, um, a another one of your crazy challenges recently, which was to run start in Scotland, run up Ben Nevis, down it, and then run all the way between there and uh, Scarfell in the lakes, and then run from there all the way to Snowdon and up and down Snowdon. Just remind me, how, how many days, did how long did that take you? And it was non-stop, wasn't it? Um, well, apart from sleeping, it was nine, nine days, 12 hours, uh, 452 miles or 17 marathons. What did you have to draw on to get you through that? There must have been some dark moments. Oh, God, there were plenty of those. I think it was physically and mentally, it was, I, I say this every time, but it was probably the toughest because everything was working against me. You know, this one taught me so much. And the thing to start with, um, with challenges, you're always pushing, pushing the bar. You know, you have to kind of aim higher to get that next fix. You want to find what else you can overcome. And... I think nowadays there's so many people doing remarkable challenges that you've kind of got to do something different if you want to make some impacts and raise a lot of money. Especially now when, I've, you know, after Everest, you've kind of set the bar very high. And I'm not interested in following the kind of conventional path. You know, I want to do something different. Um, so running the three peaks, from, from the very start, it was meant to happen in May last year. Obviously, because of COVID, it couldn't. And I had very setbacks on that. I mean, when I announced it, I, I was excited, but also terrified, which I think is the right balance. You've got to have both. If you're not scared, then there's no uncertainty. You're not stretching yourself and there's very little gain or appeal to me in that. But at the same time, I thought, what the hell have I done now? You know, who, you know, who do I think I am? Because I've run marathons and I've, I've run it, you know, I've run fairly quick on the road and, and racing, but I've, I'm not an ultra runner. I know endurance is kind of my thing, but this was pushing the boat out, you know, nearly 50 miles a day. But once it's out there, you have accountability, you have commitment, and then you've just got to do it. And then working towards it, I, I managed to sprain my ankle on week one of the training plan. You know, obviously then the pandemic hit, me and my coach kind of parted ways and that kind of went a bit sour. So that really knocked my confidence because I felt like I was going against advice of somebody who knew a lot more than me, who I respected. So that, brought all sorts of self-doubts had some kind of health worries as well and then you know that added to all this noise and then I think then I started to get really um distracted by you know competition somebody else trying it as well because I was trying to do it in, in the fastest time and that added all sorts of pressure on me as well which is all all self self-inflicted and then a week before I due to start I sprained my ankle again <laughs> on a training run my last hill run and I yeah I went over my ankle so that then forced me to postpone it by another two weeks. And I had two weeks of what I can only describe as just as, as like hell. I mean, anyone who's trained for a marathon will know the, the, the uh, taper tantrums where you start to think everything's going wrong. You get paranoid. You start feeling all these pains and niggles. But I was just thinking, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? I have to go now because I'm going to lose my chance. Is the ankle going to do it? Is it going to hold up? And that process then was about getting, getting the facts you know, I saw three different physios just to get three opinions to reassure myself that actually the ankle wasn't that bad. It was going to be OK. And either way, I was going to start regardless because otherwise I was going to lose my chance. I was just going to lose the plot because I was in such an anxious mess, you know. Um, and then the hardest part is always starting. When I got to the start line, um, when I started running up Ben Nevis at four in the morning, I felt great. The, the weight off my shoulders. Then the first day went really well. I started to believe this might happen, um, but I was just keen to get it finished in any style or way I could. Day f end of day two, um, my left foot swelled up. You know, my body started to fall apart on the tarmac, and that's when I started to get worried. Then my knees went. You know, I was patching myself up and running in different ways, anything to find a way to keep on moving. 
day four, I could barely run more than 10 meters at a time just from the pain in my shins. Uh, it was like being whacked with a hammer. I had Storm Francis as well, just to add to the fun. And uh, yeah, that was when things started to get really, really doubtful. You know, that day I was thinking, how on earth am I going to run another 50 miles, let alone, you know, I can barely manage five. But again, people come support you. You know, people jump out of a van in the middle of nowhere and, and, and walk with you for an hour or two. And that sort of safety net is absolutely important. I then thought it was all over because I just, you know, I couldn't run. Um, I saw a sports physio who managed to somehow patch me up and basically reassure me that there was no reason not to carry on. So again, work with the facts, you know, a lot can change in a day. The next day I was coming down Scarfall Pike. Um, but before that, I'd actually managed to fall down the stairs in the hostel and strain a tendon in the back of my leg. So the ankle, which is something I've worried about, was, was fine. It was everything else. You know, you take your eye off the ball. Um, again, I saw a sports physio who managed to fix me up. Again, I don't know what he did, but I learned a few tricks and you, I changed my routine. And the next day I was back running again. But that night I'd, I'd made it, I'd done about 40 odd miles to Scarfell Pike and I was coming down Scarfell Pike in the dark. The pain from this falling down the stairs now took over. I was hobbling, it was wet, it was cold, it was dark, chucking down. And then I thought, this is my lowest step. You know, just at that moment, I had an email from one of my sponsors basically telling me I should stop because they, they can see I'm clearly causing myself damage. I'm, not, I'm, clearly, I'm clearly not going to make it and beat, beat the time. And that when that nearly finished me off, it really did. Um, but I think, again, it's about working with the facts. Support comes out of nowhere, you know, by the roadside. Some people emerged from the curve with some Kendall mint cake and some Diet Coke and some money for the charity. And that, again, reminded me I have a choice. You know, I chose to be out here. Um, next day, back running again, managed 50 miles to Garstang through Lancaster, had support, people running with me all the way, so I couldn't stop. I had no choice but to carry on. Um, and, and yeah, I, somehow the body is a resilient thing and it managed to make it. Um, but it's about getting the support, getting the facts when you need it. Uh, final day, just quickly to mention, I um, set off about 3.30 in the morning to try and get to Snowden. At this point, I'd, I'd actually managed to get back on schedule. Even when the actual record fell out of sight, I was back on track. And uh, the lack of sleep got me. So the final the final few hours before the finish, I fell asleep in a bus stop in Kapakurig. And uh, yeah, that was a really interesting lesson there because I basically, by deciding to have a bit of a kip in the bus stop, then mum's car, I, you know, I lost the record by an hour, but I'd never been so exhausted in, in all my experience. You know, you have to draw on that experience. And I knew my limits were, were there. I was quite vulnerable and I just had to get to the finish. And I think it's about knowing when to step back to be able to finish it all. Is I think that was a key lesson from that, and yeah, I finished it that 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 day, an hour behind the record, but better to finish and enjoy the journey and raise eleven thousand pounds. So, considering everything against me, um, I'm very proud to have finished that. I thought, wow, um, yeah, I'm, I'm lost for words almost listening to that story and all the adversity and things that you've overcome to get there. And I think you make a really, really good point. Um, about, you know, a lot of people sometimes think mental toughness is about pushing through and pushing through. And that's what they might have taken from everything you've just described. But the key bit for me is where you said mental toughness to know when I've, I've done enough, when to pull back a bit and have a rest. And I think a lot of people mis misunderstand that about mental toughness. It's not about, you know, big biceps and balls and always pushing through. Yes, there's a component to that, but it's equally knowing to say when's enough's enough. And I think, you know, you, you showed that in spades. I think that, that's absolutely right, because it isn't about how much you can take, but it's actually about knowing when to step back to move forwards. Um, I think ultimately when you do these challenges, you know, same with the, the Olympic athletes, their threshold is a lot higher. You know, a lot of people would have maybe backed off on day one or day two, um, or even when they sprained their ankle beforehand. But I think my wants, my desire for finishing it was bigger was big enough to, to risk that you know you have to be willing to to justify the risk but then it's about having the safety net having the experience and essentially having the right people around you you know having physios that 
obviously have the duty of care, but also they 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 they've seen it they've seen it before. They know that they're just trying to patch you up to keep on moving, not trying to use a sensible option because there is nothing sensible about running the free peaks. But then it's about it is about knowing your limits, and you know I think uh, only with self awareness can you tell the difference between oh, I'm having a bad day, a bit of an excuse, I'm going to take it easy to actually give myself a bit of a push and knowing that a lot can change in a day, never make a big decision in a bad moment. Um, but having that safety net around me was absolutely key. Well, just before we, we wrap up, um, where can people find you? If they want to reach you, because I know you do a lot, of, a lot of talking, a lot of public speaking, obviously for corporates, if anyone's interested to have you along to inspire their teams, where can they find you, Alex? Yeah, yeah, thank you. I mean, I'd love to share some of these stories and insights and hopefully give them something a bit different. Um, best ways to find me on my website, alexstanleythorpe.com or LinkedIn. I'm very active on there, you know, like yourself, sharing what I know and, and I'm making, you know, trying to make a, the biggest difference I can. So please feel free to connect me on, on LinkedIn or Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, Mind Over Mountains, again, there's a link to that on my website, but that's just mindovermountains.org.uk and uh, would love people to to get in touch and, and I really hope they've enjoyed this episode as well. Well, I know I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I think there's several things I can take from, from today. One around, you know, having clear sense of purpose and your values. I think that's incredibly important. My other to wait, take away is that you can achieve an awful lot more than you, you think you can um, and, and push yourself both physically and mentally to do things. Um, I also really take away from the fact you talked about um, having the mental toughness to know when to say enough's enough and to step back to move forward. I think that's really important as well. Thank you for giving me your time today. Wishing you all the very best for uh, your work with the charity, Mind Over Mountains, and uh, any future challenges you've got coming up. And um, look forward to catching up again with you in person when we're allowed to. Yeah, it's been great. And thank you for giving me the space to, to, to share and chat and all you're doing and, you know, in, in sharing the importance of mental toughness. I think it's going to be the skill that we need more than ever in these current, current times. And so, yeah, brilliant to be on. And, and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. It only takes a moment, but it makes a massive difference to the visibility of the show and how many people we can reach. You know, our mission is to help people develop the mental fitness so that they can achieve more than they thought themselves capable of. So it'd be great if you could do that. A big thanks to Charlotte Foster Podcast for her hard work on producing the show. You can connect with her on LinkedIn. And the music for show is Where to Run by Strength to Last, created by the musical talents of Adrian Walther, a Canadian living in Nashville. Check out his music on Spotify and YouTube Music.